This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now, join Ringler Radio host, Larry Cohen. Welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're glad you could join us again today. If you're a first-time listener, you'll want to know that we cover topics of key interest in the structured settlement industry and legal community. And you can find all the Ringler Radio shows on our website at ringlerassociates.com or the legaltalknetwork.com. Well, today we're going to talk about uh, a very interesting topic, the economics of personal injury and wrongful death cases. We have all seen the reports of economists trying to put a value on items such as future care or loss of services or personal consumption. But the question always is, how can we properly evaluate what we are seeing? Well, our guest today will help us understand all of that. And we'll also be touching on uh, the subject of human capital economics, which is something I'm interested in hearing about. And we'll also go over what our guest calls the top 10 myths of forensic economics. And that's going to be a fascinating uh, topic as well. But first, let me introduce our special guest. Uh, Dr. John Scarborough is president of Litigation Analytics, Inc., and since its founding, the firm has been involved in over 2,000 cases in all 50 states, including over 1,000 cases arising from uh, commercial air disasters. He has over 25 years of experience in analyzing economic loss in the matters of personal injury and wrongful death, and over 20 years' experience in evaluating cases arising from mass torts and other disasters. He's a frequent speaker to insurance companies and law firms, and he's also, this is interesting, John, the only structured settlement broker in the United States with a Ph.D. in economics. That's quite impressive. And before starting his company, Dr. Scarborough was senior VP at Marsh Mac. And in January of this year, I'm happy to say that uh, John and his organization has joined the Ringler Associates family. So welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Larry. It's great to be here. Well, John, you know, before we begin with some of the specifics of the topic uh, today, uh, why don't you take a, a few minutes and give our audience an overview of what you have tended to see in the courtroom when it comes to the whole subject of economics? Well, with regard to personal injury, wrongful death cases, the types of cases that, that you and we deal with, the economics that we see in a courtroom is, uh, really bears no resemblance whatsoever to economics that we as economists uh, know it. Um, Economics as a science exists, of course, outside the courtroom primarily. And like any science, when it enters the courtroom to help the trier of fact, it's that outside the courtroom expertise that comes in, and at that point some people call it a forensic science. But what we see in economics is, is really quite, quite unusual in the sense that um, the economists or experts, it's not always economists, that are testifying to damages, are really applying more what you might call rules of thumb uh, or some kind of rationale than true economics. The, uh, uh, I, won't, I won't name any names, but most of the listeners will be familiar with them. We love naming names. No. <laughs> Go ahead. 
Oh, a lot of these people, you know, their their education may be in uh, counseling. Uh, I gave a deposition yesterday where the opposing expert I had a Ph.D. in counseling and had taken a few seminars in um, what he called economics or the present value of earnings. Uh, I, I once had a judge ask me when a similar credentialed person testified in a, in a case in Ohio, uh, he asked me after the jury had left uh, if I thought that this guy's taking a number of seminars in the present value of earnings meant that he just didn't get it. <laughs> because, as he recalled, he, the judge, learned about present value when he was in high school. Mm. Um, and, and this is the kind of expert that we typically see. They're, they're certainly not experts in economics. And so uh, we're very, very interested as a firm in educating people, um, whether it's uh, through speeches, through uh, um, programs such as yours, uh, or through our website, any way we can, to what economics really is. Because the, the courts are very clear when it comes to the applicability of science to the courtroom. Mm -hmm. But uh, they believe the myths that uh, I understand we're going to be talking about soon, mm -hmm. um, and, and allow a lot of this stuff in that really doesn't resemble real economics. Interesting. Well, let's uh, start in a little bit on this topic of uh, human capital uh, economics. You know, sometimes you hear it said, and I hear it said often when I go to uh, mediations, that discussing the value of a person's life is uh, sometimes they think it's distasteful. But really the truth is, John, that the concept of human capital, it can be traced back quite a ways. Uh, our legal system, as it deals with personal injury and wrongful death, uh, uses uh, relies heavily, really, doesn't it, on this concept? Yes. It, I guess we have to be careful when we talk about value of life. It's, there's Sometimes we distinguish economic value of life, but what we're really talking about in court under economic damages it's not so much the value of life, but it's the economic contributions that the injured party or the decedent would have made to their family or to their estate, uh, to survivors or to dependents. Um, not so much the, certainly not the intrinsic value of their life, mm -hmm. but the value of their economic contribution. So their, their earnings and non-wage benefits, uh, uh, perhaps services they would have provided, and, and of course we we often net out things like consumption in death cases in most jurisdictions, not all. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's an injury case, there may be, of course, uh, uh, future medical expenses that, that are part of the measurable economic loss. So, so is, that, is it, that how you define generally the concept of the term personal, uh, personal human, a person's human capital? I, th I think it's a phrase that uh, most of the audience probably is not familiar with. If you were to define it, are, th are those the things that you would define it around? Um, in a way, um, if you think of any type of, uh, well, think of physical capital. Mm -hmm. The value of physical capital, at least in theory, is the, you can look at it as either the price of what it costs you to invest in that capital, or the additional profits, revenue, benefits, uh, whatever it is you're after, that it generates from you, for you. Either way, and in theory, with perfect markets, they would be equal. Of course, in practice, they are not. Mm -hmm. And some of the it, early literature in what we call human capital, um, going back to, say, the early 1800s, there was this um, uh, two points of view. There was the point of view of, well, you should value the human capital of, say, a child as the cost of raising the child. 
because the the value of physical capital would be what does it cost you mm-hmm. um, on the other hand uh, there was the view that uh, the va- human capital the embodiment of value is the additional or I'm sorry the the income or, or earnings that that human capital would generate that that person would generate and and it's the latter that has really been the focus of modern human capital theory uh, so again, it's looking at an individual as if they produce income or produce things of value, whether it's services or non-wage benefits and the like. Back in the 1800s, in the early part of that uh, time frame, uh, they actually traded in human capital. So, I mean, they, well, they, put, va- they put value <laughs> on human life in a different way that we do today. That's exactly right. And it's interesting because there is a lot of literature and a lot of research that's been done equating those two. And mm-hmm. they're, <clears throat> they're much more similar than you might think. Well, explain a little bit about how this all plays out in the courtroom or during settlement discussions. How do you take this concept of uh, a, a person's human capital and those elements, and how do you apply them to a case that you're working on? Well, it, it's very simple in, in a sense, and that is that what you're interested in recovering in a, in a tort case or a personal injury case is, for example, the lost earnings of an individual if they're totally disabled or, uh, or if it's a death case. And... The human capital literature at, at the very heart of it is what what do people uh, or how do people make decisions about investing in themselves human capital going to school and uh, or investing in education mm-hmm. on the job training and what we find is that people make decisions based upon a trade off between what it costs them to obtain the training. If you invest in education, it costs you tuition, books, and so forth. But most importantly, you give up income while you're in school. You don't earn as much as you otherwise would. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest share of the cost. And in exchange for that, you get an increase in your lifetime earnings. So over the last 50 years, 60 years, the focus has been on how is the best way to measure the earnings that a person would likely receive? What factors impact those earnings. What can we, what do we know about the person that helps us predict what those earnings will be? Mm-hmm. And that is exactly the question that is of interest in a courtroom. What is it about this person that helps us predict what their earnings would have been? And and what is that prediction? Well, you know, in addition to the what is that what question, I'd imagine one of the biggest controversies is over who determines the value of the human capital and how should it be determined. What, what are some of the problems inherent in making those critical decisions as to who well, and, the, and the how? Certainly the how is, is very clearly spelled out in the economics literature. The, uh, for example, with regard to earnings, the method that uh, literally all economists use outside of a courtroom, uh, the human capital earnings function or... Uh, uh, we also call it the Mincer equation. Mm-hmm. Um, you might be, if you're interested, go to Google and put in quotes so it looks for a phrase, Mincer equation or Mincer earnings function, M-I-N-C-E-R. M-I-N-C-E-R, okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you'll see that, uh, that you find uh, researchers at Yale, at Harvard, at the World Bank, at the Bureau of Census, at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, not only within the United States, but countries throughout the world, that, that is the standard. And mm-hmm. it's referred to as the most widely accepted empirical specification in economics, the most frequently run regression in economics. So it's very, very standard. The, the who 
um, you need someone that knows that, mm-hmm. uh, that knows how to use that. And any labor economist who is well-trained um, knows how to do that, and that's the standard. That's what's taught in the classroom and has been since the early 60s. The problem we find in a courtroom, though, is that lawyers and judges not being economists um, tend to allow rules of thumb to be substituted for economic science. Hmm. Interesting. You know, before we go on, I'd like to just uh, warn my audience about Googling that Mincer equation. I did that. I did it uh, last night, and you must be, uh, you have to be very careful how you put it in. I, I put it in probably a little sloppily, and I, I got a whole report on how to chop onions. So I, I, don't, know, <laughs> I don't know what that meant. Well, John, you've stated that, and, and this really, we're going to get into the, really the meat of what I, I really want to talk about with you today. You've stated that when it comes to the economics of personal injury in the courtroom, and I'm quoting you now, the economics cited there bear little resemblance to the real world, and that in your words, we have a, a really an emperor's new clothing syndrome. Uh, let's go through a list of these myths. You call them the 10 myths of uh, forensic economics, and I think uh, our audience will find them fascinating. Uh, just for the purpose of time, I, I'm going to give you those myths, and you'll give us a little short version of what you mean by that, and, and then at the end of our uh, session here, you'll tell our audience how to get a little more uh, information about it, okay? Yes, that'll be fine, and, and bear in mind as we go through these that uh, as, you, as, as we talk about them, um, I think it's important to remember that the so-called forensic economists, um, and not all forensic economists, um, rely upon myths and rules of thumb. There are some legitimate well-trained economists out there, but most of what we see fall into the category where they they use the myths um, in place of of real applicable training. Mm -hmm. Because if you're using the myths, if you're using these rules of thumb, then you really don't have to know anything. You just do arithmetic. Mm -hmm. And it opens up the field of being a testifying forensic economist to almost anyone. Yeah, and I'm sure you want to keep that uh, group a little limited. Well, I'm glad you said that to me. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. Before we get on, uh, it's, it's interesting, the concepts of forensic economics and human capital economists. Uh, a, lot of these, a lot of the terminology, I'm, I want to make sure our audience doesn't get a little bit lost in all the terminology, and I would, I would also encourage them to, uh, and you'll tell them your website later, to go into your website because you do a good job there of uh, explaining a lot of these terms, and that's important to, for all of our audience to understand. Good, thank you. Okay, well, let's start out with these... Uh, Ten myths of forensic economics. The first myth you cite is that earnings increase at a constant rate. Yes. So tell me why that's not true. Well, that's perhaps the most common, uh, the most common technique or rule of thumb that we see in a courtroom. Um, the uh, the expert will make an assumption about the rate of increase in earnings. Um, this is this is a very common belief among lawyers as well. We've known for over a hundred years that that no individual's earnings rise at a constant rate, um, and I don't mean by that that they vary from one year to the next because of economics uh, like inflation and so mm-hmm. forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that earnings rise for an individual at a declining rate as they get older. If you look at the earnings of young, say, college graduates uh, over the first ten years of their career they might receive a, a, an increase in earnings that uh, averages 12 to 15% per year. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if you look at the last 10 years of their careers, 
you see earnings increases that are no better than inflation. So each year, the expected rate of increase in earnings is less than the year before. And we see this in every data set that, whether it's census data, American Community Survey, any data set that shows earnings by age and education, Mm -hmm. um, and not only in the United States, but throughout the world. So I would assume if uh, a report comes in that gives a kind of a constant rate of uh, increase in earnings, you're able to then counter that with uh, some pretty good arguments. Yeah, so for example, if, if earnings all rose at the same rate regardless of a person's experience, then if you think about it, everyone should earn the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, a third-year law student looking at the first-year associate in a law firm and seeing that they earn, say, $50,000 a year, if, if that first-year law um, position is going to have an increase at the same rate as every other position, then say it's 4%, and currently they're earning $50,000 as a first-year associate, the third-year law student figures that they're going to get 4% more than 50000 when they're in that position, or 52000 Interesting. And then the first-year associate believes he's going to get a, he or she's going to get a 4% increase to 52000 but then they'll be in the second year. Hmm. So now you have first and second year associates earning the same thing, et cetera, et cetera, so everyone would earn the same amount. Earnings increases must be a function of uh, experience, otherwise everyone would earn the same amount of money. Okay, good. Well, that first uh, myth, I, we took a little more time than, than I initially wanted to, but I want to give everyone the flavor of, of how each myth can be really discussed. And so now we'll move on to the other ones, maybe with a little shorter uh, version of the, of the answer. The second myth is that earnings rise at a constant rate relative to the discount rate. Yeah, this is exactly the same as the first, mm-hmm. that they rise at a constant rate. By assuming that they rise with the discount rate, then it just means that, again, they're independent of experience. So it's basically the same myth, just recast. Okay, cool. Number three, consumption is a percentage of the decedent's earnings. Yes, that's interesting because, uh, first of all, that goes against uh, Milton Friedman's Nobel Prize and Franco Modigliani's Nobel Prize, um, both who did work basically that contradicts this. Mm-hmm. Um, nowhere do economists believe that consumption uh, is some percentage of earnings. Very simply, if consumption is a percentage of earnings, what, for example, happens when a person retires? Mm-hmm. Uh, if earnings go to zero, then their consumption goes to zero. And that we know isn't true. No, There's an entire really. industry out there, uh, financial planning. Uh, probably two of them call my number every day, mm-hmm. and they want to help us save more for retirement. Exactly. Okay, number four is the value of fringe benefits is their cost to the employer. How yeah, is that this is, um, is interesting because uh, what we usually see is a reference to surveys as to how much employers spend for fringe benefits or for the particular plaintiff in question, um, what their employer spent. And if you think about it, what's recoverable is the value of fringe benefits, not what it costs their employer. And in many instances, the cost to the employer has no relationship whatsoever to the value of the benefit. But vacation uh, time, for example, mm-hmm. that's uh, a benefit, but you don't get extra money for it, yet employers view it as a cost. Yeah, and sometimes employers pay to the government uh, some of the some of the uh, taxes, et cetera, that allow the benefit to be paid to the employee. Exactly. Social Security is a great example. That's a tax paid by the employer and by the employee to the government. There's no benefit until the employee retires. 
Okay. Number five is the value of household services is the replacement cost of time spent. Yes, we could spend a day on this, so I know you don't want to, but um, <laughs> suffice if we, it to If we can go to the beach, that, I think we might, but not, not here. <laughs> suffice it to say, Larry, that, that what you see is that there's an assumption made about the amount of time that a person would have spent providing household services. Mm-hmm. Um, few problems with that. One is that that person, a lot of that time they would have spent, would have also would have been spent doing things for themselves, washing their own clothes, fixing their own car, that sort of thing. Hmm. And certainly in a death case, that doesn't have to be replaced. Similarly, I don't know about your wife, but my wife would never agree that I spend more time providing services for her than she does for me. And uh, if something happens to me, then she doesn't have to provide those services. I think my wife is listening. I think I'll, yeah, uh, I think I'll defer on that one. <laughs> there you go. And then the final thing is that they're, they're using somebody else's hourly wage to replace my time. So if it takes me five hours to mow my lawn, um, you wouldn't hire somebody who comes in with rotary mowers and cuts it in 45 minutes and pay them five hours worth of their hourly rate. You'd pay them to mow the lawn. Well, five hours. Either you live on a very large estate, John, or you're pretty slow with the mower. I have a small mower. There you go. Number six, another myth is that the present value discount rate is either historical or based on what, present treasury note rates. Yes, um, if you really think about it, it's much like annuities. Mm -hmm. Um, You need something that makes payments regularly. Um, and by the way, the, the cost to the plaintiff of a structured settlement annuity is a terrific measure of the present value, especially in uh, uh, future cost of care assessment of present value. And there are life companies that are sponsoring this show that allow me to testify that way, mm-hmm. which is uh, a great, great benefit. But certainly you wouldn't look historically because... Um, you want to know what is it that this person can invest in in order to replace their uh, economic loss. If you buy a 20-year Treasury bond, it's going to pay interest every six months for 20 years and then give you your money back. Not many damage streams look like that. Mm -hmm. So you really have to have a portfolio of financial instruments, uh, whether it's Treasuries or AAA municipals if it's after tax, and uh, develop the present value that way. Okay. Again, it's, it's... very, very common in uh, the legitimate economics and finance literature. It just doesn't fit the convenient rule of thumb um, of the um, so-called forensic economist. You know, this all comes around uh, the overall theme of uh, when, we, when we see any of these economic reports, you can, you can see the twist that the economist is making in terms of choosing different inflation periods or, or, or specific discount rates. To, to feather the nest of whoever they're they're trying to, to work for and and, and it require it requires both sides to be very you know diligent trying yes, to figure that's it right. out if your if your analysis is based on rules of thumb doing nothing but arithmetic with assumptions then your results are totally dependent upon the assumptions absolutely and economics is not like that you know it's it is what it is your opinion is not the number your opinion is that this e- that economic science is what applies and there's really no no particular assumptions that need to be made. Okay, let's move on. Number seven, you say a myth is that inflation of medical-related goods and services and life care plans mirror historical medical inflation. Yes, another one we could talk days on. Um, um, inflation, pro- projecting inflation is has nothing whatsoever to do with looking at the past. Mm-hmm. Um, if you 
consider those who make projections, the Council of Economic Advisors, the Federal Reserve, um, the um, uh, DRI econometric forecasting model, the Wharton econometric forecasting model, they are not simply taking the past and projecting it into the future. Economics is about explaining the past, explaining why prices changed like they did. And by identifying the factors that caused those changes, you can project those factors and then determine what the impact on future prices will be. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, there are also a number of data issues, uh, uh, a whole host of problems with, uh, with looking at the past and, and trying to use that as a guide to the future. Uh, doing it makes it very simple because you don't have to know anything. You just have to go do some calculations. It's kind of the, the Geico approach to economics. You know, it's so simple, even a caveman can do it. Right. Uh, were you talking to me when you said that? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Number, number eight, another myth, future inflation and future productivity mirror history. Yeah, same thing. It's very similar, yeah. Very similar. You know, you know what's interesting? I, I had a, uh, a case one time where someone was trying to argue that inflation was going to be so you know, horrible in terms of its impact on, the, on, on, this, on these dollars. Uh, my, my economist, the, the defense economist in the case, s- said, if, if that's the case, then the toothbrush that George Washington bought <laughs> to, to brush his false teeth that cost him five cents should today cost two hundred and forty-two dollars. Yeah, you know? there you, you know, go. It doesn't work that way in a straight <laughs> it, line. Very it doesn't work stuff. that way. All right, number nine. Another myth: forensic economics is a field or branch of economics. Yes, that's very interesting. If you think about the definition of forensic science, it's the application of that science to matters of the court. Mm-hmm. And there's no way then that that can be a separate branch of whatever field it is. You know, if you hire a cardiologist to testify in a uh, med mal case, you wouldn't expect that cardiologist to get up there and say, well, my specialty is forensic cardiology, and in forensic cardiology, the heart looks like this, you know, and then draw a triangle or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it better be the exact same cardiology that's taught in med school and practiced in a hospital. Otherwise, you would never let him or her get on the witness stand. Um, it's the same way with economics. Forensic economics is just the application of economics to the courtroom. Exactly. Well, let's look at number 10 then. Another myth, the relevant scientific community is that of forensic economists. Yes, this uh, you see a lot in, uh, in states that follow the Fry standards, so the question of relevant scientific community is important. Uh, just as forensic economics is not a branch of economics, so it is not part of a scientific, or it's not a science. Uh, a science can't exist solely in a courtroom. So the application of economics to the courtroom can't be a science in and of itself. It's economics that's the science. Therefore, the relevant scientific community is that of economists. It's that of labor economists, those who outside of the courtroom, whether it's in government or research institutions or the classroom or universities, um, that are doing research and, and applying what they've developed um, in, in assessing people's earnings and benefits and consumption and these types of things. Well, that's very interesting. Those are the top ten myths, and uh, I know you'll describe them uh, a, a lot more detail later on. But we're going to take a short break right now, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little more about the myths of forensic economics. Is that a tease or what? We'll be right back. This is Ringler Radio, 
Internet radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 130,000 cases structured. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Ringler Radio is produced by broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network and become a member. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know Ringler Radio is one of the top three rated shows in iTunes? Thanks to all of our listeners who download all the Ringler Radio shows. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE? Including Ringler Radio. Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's clecenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Welcome back. We're talking about forensic economics with our special guest today, Dr. John Scarborough, president of Litigation Analytics. And John, in the short time we have left, why don't you tell us how your company, Litigation Analytics, analyzes economic damages and give us an example of a real-life case. Or it could be a wrongful death case. It doesn't have to be alive. Well, <laughs> yeah, I got it. Got it. <laughs> um, well, as I said, they, the whole purpose of what we do is to apply uh, labor economics or human capital principles and, and the methods developed um, to cases. And um, uh, when it comes to cases with lost earnings, we use the human capital earnings function. Um, when it comes to death cases where we're looking at the consumption, um, then we use the um, literature on consumption and data from Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, and the like. Um, and I guess one way to, to talk about that that might be a, a, of some interest is that we do an awful lot of, uh, of what might be called bad baby cases, um, medical malpractice cases where um, birth trauma cases, uh, infants are involved. And, and they're a little bit different in that there's no earnings history. Um, we do know from research both in uh, not only in economics but also in psychology and sociology that among the factors that uh, impact earnings are, of course, it's, of course, education. And among the factors that impact a child's eventual education is the education and income of the parents. Now, those two things are very highly correlated in that uh, parents with high levels of education also tend to have high levels of income and vice versa. The uh, education level of the parents is generally deemed to be, of, of all the factors, the most important, explains most of the variation. Mm-hmm. There is a very, very good survey that began being con- um, um, conducted back in, I believe, 1972 by the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago. And uh, they asked people questions about themselves. Among those questions are, what was your level of education and what was your parents? So what 
you can develop from that database is the likelihood of a given child achieving um, different levels of education. So by gathering data from U.S. Census or American Community Survey for um, males and, and females uh, either separately or together, with these various levels of education, we can determine what, with a given level of education, is the effective experience and develop an earnings function for each level of education and, therefore, future earnings and present value thereof, if relevant, for this child, depending upon the level of education. And then you can adjust those or weight those by the likelihood that that level of education would actually occur and develop a true expectation of future earnings. Mm -hmm. This is contrasted with um, uh, a, an approach that, um, that you might see in the courtroom where two or three levels of education are selected, usually a, a, a college degree, a graduate degree, and perhaps some college or, or high school, and earnings are estimated using some rule of thumb uh, for each of these, and they leave it at that and let the jury kind of pick, the thought being that maybe they'll pick something in, in the middle. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are ways to give the trier of fact much more information than that. And the, the whole point is not to tell the jury that if this happens, then here's the arithmetic. But the point is that this is most likely to happen, and therefore here's the result. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference between knowledge of the underlying science, which is of value to the trier of fact, and simply knowledge of arithmetic which is of not, not of value to the trier fact. You know, and it also, it also seems that one side is trying to prove very statistically what the potential outcome is going to be, while the other side is looking more at the American Dream Syndrome that says this child, even though the parents are un uneducated, can, can reach very high levels of, sure. of attainment. Sure, that's right. And, and, of course, that does happen. Mm -hmm. And there are, uh, in fact, you, you'll see in those data that Parents that did not finish high school, or children of parents who did not finish high school, do have a, a, a small chance of actually becoming physicians, lawyers, uh, PhDs, and other professionals. But it's a very small chance. Well, it's very interesting. It's a very interesting topic. Listen, John, I want to thank you very much for sharing your time with us. Uh, if someone wants to learn more about this whole topic and really get more into the myths that we talked about before, how do they reach you? I then go to our website, which is litigationanalytics.com. Okay, great. Now, remember, you can reach any of our Ringler Associates by clicking on ringlerassociates.com. And I hope you all enjoyed the show. You know, John, I've enjoyed uh, uh, this show very much. But, you know, I have enough of a problem just seeing my life expectancy every time I have to look at those charts. And uh, if I have to know my human capital numbers, uh, that might really depress me, you know. So, <laughs> but I do want to thank you again. Now, thank let's you, all, Larry. Yeah, thank you again. Let's all go out now and have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets, that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential.